Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Keck CNC's Global Thinking Podcast. This episode, we're taking a closer look at our latest Impact Insights newsletter, looking at four leaders and four lessons in communications all around the topic of control in interviews, how to get it, how to hold it, and what it looks like when you lose it. Thinking of some of the best and worst interviews ever done, the one thing, that secret dynamic is at play behind them all, and it's control. There's always a subtle energy between the interviewer and the interviewee of passing the control between each other, but it isn't as easy as it seems. Today, I'm joined by our very own Keck CNC experts, Dominic Reynolds and Jemima McChrystal, to take a deeper look at the science of control in interviews. So guys, in the recent newsletter you've put out, you've named four examples of this control dynamic. So let's start with the BBC's interview with Elon Musk that made the headlines around the world. Dom, could you talk us through that? For sure. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about this one, right, is that this is the world's second richest man uh, who's recently taken the, the reins of one of the world's most sort of fought over contentious social media businesses. And in doing that, he has fired people. He's made big changes that affect freedom of speech. He has uh, made headlines right around the world and annoyed quite a lot of people um, as well, not least people who used to work for Twitter. So you would think that if uh, he then puts himself forward for a no-holds-barred interview. He would be on the back foot or he might find it pretty tricky. What ended up happening was something quite different. You know, the headlines that came out of this interview with uh, James Clayton, who's a, a tech reporter for the BBC based on the West Coast, was that uh, Musk destroyed him, that he was humiliated, that he was unprepared for this interview. And we looked at this and kind of wondered, well, how does this happen? You know, as an ex-journalist, particularly, I was interested in how this happens. And, you know, it made us think about this idea of control as this central dynamic when Whenever we talk to leaders about managing media situations, particularly sensitive ones, it's all about this passing back and forth of control. Who's got it? Who can keep it the longest? And in this interview, Elon Musk just took control and ran with it. He ran to the hills with control. There were questions being fired back at the journalist. He was demanding evidence for the claims that the journalist was making. And you know what? I would say that this guy, James Clayton, he didn't do badly. It was a pretty tough situation, but there were certainly gaps in his approach. And someone who is as um, savvy a media operator as Elon Musk certainly didn't need uh, much encouragement to try and exploit those, which he did. And it was quite uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, it was all over social media, an absolute car crash interview. I did feel sorry for the guy. But, you know, arguably the outcome and the direction of that interview were already in place before it even started, though, with the the, the dynamic between them, it being the tech reporter. Um, yeah, it, it seemed like it was always going to go that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You say car crash. I think there were whole sections of that, which were actually reasonably well handled. But, you know, you're right. It doesn't need much more than like a single stretch of the interview to, to kind of really color uh, the the perceptions of the whole thing. I think it was, you know, it was well over an hour that they were talking for. Um, but, you know, when I heard about the way the interview came to be, as an ex-broadcast journalist, it sort of filled me with horror because I could imagine how this would happen. You know, Clayton had been consistently bidding for Elon Musk, as I'm sure had people all over the BBC. And then suddenly, on one particular day, Musk said, yes, you can interview me, but 
you have to do it today. You have to do it tonight, which was in about sort of five, six hours from that moment. So straight away, Clayton didn't really have much time to prepare, certainly not in detail. And even with a bit of a team around him um, working quickly, there's only so much that one person um, in that moment can achieve. Um, He then got there, interestingly, and was told, contrary to the arrangements that had been set up before, that the interview would be streamed live on Twitter spaces, on the the sort of streaming bit of of Twitter that, of course, Musk wanted to publicize. So that then ups the pressure as well. So, you know, uh, and then the interview gets going. And at the end of it, Musk sort of changed the finishing line and said, well, actually, we said 45 minutes. Let's just keep talking, which unsettled him still further. So, you know, as an interviewer, you want to be in command of the material, you want to feel like you know what's coming up, where you want to take the interview. But in certain really key ways, Elon Musk, in advance of the interview, really whipped the carpet out from under the interviewer, making sure that before anyone pressed record, control was sitting firmly on his side. Uh, And, you know, if you think about an interview, a good interview as a bit like a sort of tennis game that you've got shots going back and forth, question and answer, challenge and rebuttal. In in reality, because of what had happened beforehand, the game of tennis they were playing was on a court that had been built by Elon Musk and tilted in his favour and Musk had drawn the lines on it uh, and it all played to his strengths and it was pretty unfavourable for Mr Clayton. Yeah, I absolutely wouldn't have wanted to have been in his shoes on that day. Um, But Musk is not the only Silicon Valley CEO that's had an interesting experience recently when being interviewed. Um, Jemima, can you tell us a little bit more about the TikTok CEO and what's been happening with him recently? Very different, but at the same time, um, an interesting example in how you can regain control in this case after an interview has taken place that potentially didn't go um, well. So for those that don't know, Sho Chu, who's the CEO of TikTok, um, was called up in front of Congress earlier this year to defend um, the use of the app in America and it being owned by its parent company, ByteDance. Um, the interview, the Senate hearing itself really didn't go well for Chu. Republicans in particular, but Democrats as well, came down particularly hard on Chu and he didn't stand up very well against it. I mean, you had the Florida Republican representative saying your technology is literally leading to death and Chu kind of unable to articulate a response to that. So in some ways, a disaster. Um, But what Chu did differently is he took to TikTok afterwards to better articulate in small bite-sized videos the key points that he wanted to make. Um, And that gained a huge amount of traction because he was obviously speaking to his target audience um, and communicating in a way that they are familiar with, which is, you know, really small punchy pieces of information um, that are kind of guaranteed to make a headline where he explained that 150 million Americans would no longer have access to TikTok. Obviously, we're increasingly seeing people make their incomes from TikTok. So there's an um, economic impact to that. And those videos got millions and millions of views. Um, they became they trended across the platform. Um, he was kind of actually memeified from it into these quite funny thirst trap memes um, with hilarious love hearts all over them. Um, and I mean, some of those memes were kind of seen to be a bit of a reductionist to an important issue. But ultimately, um, if you can 
take an important issue and kind of transport it through pop, pop culture, you make it a lot easier for people to talk about that issue and a lot more accessible. Um, and he kind of ultimately won over the audience that he needed to win over, which is his customer base in America. Um, and that has proved to be a kind of resounding success online that helps match the arguably fairly negative coverage from how he performed when grilled in um, Congress itself. So other than becoming a bit of a TikTok heartthrob, what is the sort of key takeaway from this? Are you saying that you can really claw back control following a difficult experience if you're given the right tools? Yeah, I think, you know, it's not going to be TikTok for everybody. That depends on the brand and the company you are. But what you can do is it might be issuing a letter to your investors or your shareholders, or it might be sending an email out to your employees. And I think taking back control post any kind of interview where you can reiterate your key points um, in a way and via a platform that is most accessible to the largest number of your stakeholders, whoever they may be is always going to play to your favor. And the more people that you can reach that are within your relevant audience, um, the better you will be at, like you say, clawing back that control. So just moving on and in keeping with the tech theme that we have here, there's been another tech giant, one that we all know, Microsoft, that's been in the spotlight recently as well. And it seemed as though when Brad Smith spoke to BBC's Wake Up to Money program, he seemed like he broke that golden rule of not getting too emotional. And he got quite angry in reaction to what was happening with the situation with the CMA. Dom, so what, what do you think went wrong here? Or, or arguably, when we get a little bit more into discussion, arguably what went right for Brad Smith here? Exactly. I, you know, I think that is the question. And so we're talking about Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft. And, you know, emotion and the showing of emotion as a senior corporate leader is quite a contentious area, I think, and one that we're certainly as advisors asked about a lot. You know, everyone's, uh, every leader is told that they need to be authentic and they need to show their emotions, particularly for internal audiences. And that's what drives connection. Um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. We would say generally that anger is not an emotion that we would recommend leaders lead with, at least. Um, you know, the, the context of this is that Microsoft is uh, looking to buy the games development giant Activision Blizzard. If they did, it would be a huge deal. It would shake up the games industry completely. It would transform Microsoft's market access, um, but it would at the same time put a lot of power with one player. So regulators all over the world are looking very carefully at it. So the UK's regulator was one of the first to to report back. Um, And when they did and blocked the deal, within 24 hours, you had Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, going onto the BBC, giving a broadcast interview and really kind of hitting post-Brexit Britain right in the solar plexus. You know, the sentiments were very well prepared. He was saying that what was going on here was very bad for Britain. It was a bad place to start a business now that the English Channel had never looked wider. These are really, you know, for for a a nation that, as he very well knows, is kind of looking very carefully and nervously at its place in the world from a business perspective. Uh, That kind of message from that kind of person was uh, really going to pack a punch. Um, but, you know, as someone who was literally brushing his teeth as uh, as this interview played out, I really couldn't 
believe it. I thought it was so unusual to hear that kind of targeted negative emotion coming from uh, a sort of mainstream corporate leader. It's the sort of thing we just don't hear that much at the moment. Um, although perhaps you could argue, you know, it's a greater emotionalizing of corporate life. We're going to be hearing it a lot more. But I think in this situation, it was a real rarity. Um, did it work, I guess, is the question. And, you know, maybe it did, because a couple of weeks later after this, you know, real shellacking, as, as President Obama would say, um, the EU came back uh, and their verdict on the same issue was the opposite way. They approved the deal that the UK's watchdog, competition watchdog, had blocked. So, you know, perhaps it worked overall, but it's certainly a high risk strategy to go out into the media with your blood up. I think we would always say you want to be calm, you want to be considered, you don't want to be letting your emotions uh, lead, lead you rather than your head. I mean, you've touched on some of them there, and maybe I'm putting you on the spot, but if you were with uh, Brad Smith on the morning of that interview, is there anything that you would have told him to do differently? Um, you've, you've named a few, but it'll be interesting with your, uh, your advisor and, and ex-broadcaster hat on if you'd have, you'd have asked him to do anything different. Okay, you have put me on the spot. Do you know what? I would say that um, I would not have recommended that he did that interview, certainly not in that way. I think some of the language he used was um, the sort of language that is most effective when it is in a letter and it can be chewed over by the the um, stakeholders you're trying to reach um, at, at their leisure. I think that um, once it's a broadcast interview, you risk losing control of it a little bit more in the moment. Um, you know, what he was trying to do, of course, is, is wrestle control of the whole conversation back, go beyond the interview and frame the entire subject in, in the way that he wanted. Um, but, you know, I think the reason I would have said don't do what he did is that context is everything. You know, if you look at the wider argument here, the watchdog is looking to see, is Microsoft too big too powerful, you know, is it essentially going to be a commercial bully and bully the industry's smaller players? So if that's the question in the air, for one of the senior leaders of the business to go out there and be a bit bolshy, a bit pugnacious with the interviewer, when the question is about being too big, too powerful and throwing your weight around, actually throwing your weight around in an interview, I would say is not strategically that sensible. Um, but uh, Brad Smith, I'm sure, is a man who's difficult to argue with. So, Jemima, with the last example that you and Dom pull out in the latest uh, Impact Insights newsletter is what I think we've used the phrase already, but is what can only be described as a mega, mega car crash interview. And it's the one with the CEO of OnlyFans um, when she was uh, speaking with The Times. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what happened from that and the learnings that other listeners, other CEOs could take from it. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't read it, I really do recommend reading it. It's not often you read something where you cringe every other sentence, uh, but this is one of those interviews. Um, Amrapali Gan is she's the CEO of OnlyFans, um, and she took over about a year ago to help destigmatize the platform. For those of you that aren't aware, um, OnlyFans is an adult content platform with mostly known for X-rated content, um, but GAN has tried to steer the reputation of the platform into um, what they call SFW content, which is safe for work content that could be cooking, gardening, whatever. Um, 
it's still mainly known for X-rated content. Um, and she agreed to this very long profile interview with the Times as part of her campaign to transform OnlyFans' reputation. Um, and it did not go well at all. Um, I think a key learning really is that while she wanted to present OnlyFans as this safe, inclusive community, and she used these buzzwords just endlessly throughout the piece, um, she had no data and no, no proof points to back up what she was asserting as um, the kind of product of her company and was torn to pieces by her interviewer um, who called her out on using these buzzwords, asked her, there was a particularly painful moment where she said that she'd got managed to get her 13-year-old son to kind of break through the age limits on OnlyFans and it took him about half an hour. Um, and Gan did all of this with a smile on her face and just repeated key messages and it landed completely flat. Um, it kind of the end of the interview was the interviewer asking her how much she'd been media trained, which is obviously <laughs> one of the worst things you want to happen at the end. Um, and essentially said that what Gan wants her content platform to be is wildly different from what it actually is. Um, so I think the lesson there really is don't agree to those kind of long form interviews and all access interviews if you're not fully prepared for them and you can want to present um, a narrative of your company as much as you like. But if you can't back that up, then you're much better staying quiet than uh, agreeing to such a high profile interview because it ultimately did her a huge amount of damage when she was relatively new into the role and also only fans as a platform. Um, so I think, yeah, the main point there is it's not enough to just want to signal a shift unless you've got proof to back that shift up. You can't be communicating it loudly to the world. Yeah, because, you know, going back to this idea of control and you want to be able to take control and keep control to some extent, but, but allow it to go back and forth. If you don't have any answers to the obvious questions that you're going to be asked, you are essentially getting into a car, setting the sat-nav, going down the road, but it has no steering wheel. Unless it goes exactly as you expect, you're going to end up crashing off the side of the road. So, you know, it sounds obvious, but of course, go in there with a message. Importantly, don't just focus on the message you're there to get across. If you're in a contentious area, anticipate what those questions are going to be, anticipate the pushback, and think of a way of, of deftly, of charmingly knitting the two things together so you can preemptively deal with these things. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like that whole preparation is key, especially when you're talking to very, very experienced journalists who know all the tactics and, you know, they really do have that control in that situation. And I think since we published this, I think it would be a miss if we didn't touch on it, but uh, Dom, Jemima, who, what do you think of the CNN situation that's just unfolded with uh, Chris Licht? If we look at it through control, what does it, what does it tell us? Yeah, this is fascinating, isn't it? And we, you know, we'd spent so much time thinking about control and then this fascinating case study of 
you know, all of the things that we've been talking about coming together as one uh, suddenly comes out. Um, you know, the, the the background here is that the new-ish CEO of, of CNN, Chris Licht, has been in charge or had been in charge for about a year. He was on the ropes in that job, should we say, for all sorts of reasons that we won't get into now. But suffice to say, the knockout punch was... Uh, delivered by a journalist to whom he had given full access. And this was for a a long Atlantic article that gave the kind of inside story of what had been happening in the past year at CNN. So, So the CEO was already in a difficult situation. But when this article came out, that was it. And within, I think, within hours, um, he'd been removed from his post. And, you know, if anyone is going to give full access to a journalist to their life, as the CEO did, uh, he did so over time, he let his guard down. In that situation, it's really hard to keep control because it becomes a very informal situation. You would think that that, that uh, a lifetime journalist, a veteran newsman like Chris Licht would understand that. Um, but it just goes to show that, you know, sometimes keenness to, to um, win over an audience, maybe a little bit of vanity, could I hesitate to say, once you stir that kind of thing in, it, it can color your judgment, it can um, change the kind of calculus of the situation. Um, and it seemed that he was totally surprised by this really quite excoriating and, and unflattering piece finally coming out after he'd let, let the Atlantic journalists have access to his life for a very long time. There's another sort of lesson for leaders there, isn't there, around you often see new CEOs and new leaders wanting to do something differently from their predecessors to make a mark. And Zucker, the CEO before, um, had always refused to do um, anything other than on background interviews for this exact reason. And I think, and you read it in the article, Licht was desperate to establish himself as a better leader than Zucker and and clearly had an inferiority complex around that and and so saw this as an opportunity to kind of step into the limelight where Zucker hadn't and and it played out terribly. So although when you're new into a role, of course, you want to establish yourself and how you're going to run things differently, that sometimes there are lessons to be learnt by your predecessors that you should listen to. And clearly, this was one of those occasions. Well, Dom, Jemima, thank you both so much for talking us through those and unpacking those further for us and our listeners. But, you know, with leadership rarely being plain sailing, I think the main deduction from this um, this deep dive is that control is something that when communicating your message, you always have to be mindful of. Your audience, your platform and your preparedness and timing, they all play such a great role in maintaining that balance of control. So thank you all for listening and we will see you next time.